and welcome to Let's Chat Law, the podcast. It's Hannah Mae and Queenie here. Do you want to have a chat about law? If the answer is yes, we've got the perfect episode for you, all about privilege applications and the route to the bar with two special guests, Tilly Chow and Christian Weaver. Whether you're on a walk, on your lunch break, on your commute to uni or making dinner, have a listen to Let's Chat Law, the podcast. Welcome to Let's Chat Law, the podcast. Today, we will talk about pupillage applications. My name is Queenie, a final year law student at the University of Sussex, an aspiring solicitor. And I'm Hannah May, the founder of Let's Chat Law, and I am a trainee solicitor currently in data privacy. In this episode, we are chatting about pupillage applications. Pupillage is a vocational stage for aspiring barristers, and currently it's the application season. While neither of us are aspiring barristers, we did consider the route a few times at law school. And luckily, we have two amazing guests to share their insights into a career at the bar and pupillage application season. We spoke to Tilly Chow, who qualified as a solicitor first and will do a pupillage soon, and Christian Weaver, who is a barrister and author of The Law in 60 Seconds, A Pocket Guide to Your Rights. In addition, Gabby's back on the podcast to help us break down a listener question about pupillage applications, and we'll chat to two new members of the Let's Chat Law podcast team, Lana and Betty, who will be sharing a commercial awareness update and legal fun fact. You'll hear from them later in this episode. So Hannah May, what's new with the Let's Chat Law team and what's happening around in February? Firstly, I'm really excited to announce that the Let's Chat Law team has expanded. We've grown from a team of seven to 18 over Christmas, and all our new volunteers have some really exciting ideas. In terms of events next month, we'll be hosting an online workshop on Monday the 7th of February in the evening and Let's Chat Lunch, our revamped commercial awareness themed online event on Friday 18th of February. Our topic in February is going to be negotiation skills and assessment centres, so please stay tuned and subscribe to our mailing list. We'll put the sign up link in the comments. But if you're still catching up with Let's Chat Law in January and our topic of pupillage applications, we've got you covered. Queenie and I had a great chat with Tilly Chow, a newly qualified solicitor turned future barrister and also the co-founder of Strive. While she didn't have a favorite legal movie, she did share some great advice for the aspiring barristers and some tips on choosing the right route and chambers for you. Okay, welcome Tilly to the podcast about pupillage applications. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you so much, ladies, for introducing me. My name is Tilly. In terms of my route into law, I went to UCL to do a law degree, and then I also got a training contract during my law degree with Ashurst. So I did an LPC at the University of Law, and then after that, I did two years worth of training contracts at Ashurst uh, before then leaving commercial law as a solicitor. But currently doing a master's in Germany in international human rights and humanitarian law, followed by um, in a couple of months' time, I'll come back to London, and then I will be pursuing my pupillage um, at the commercial bar. Besides that as well, I am a founder or co-founder of Strive, uh, which is a charity based in the UK, based in London actually, um, and we aim to help underrepresented individuals get into careers in commercial law. What made you decide to go down to Barrister Road because you have qualified as a solicitor? So um, I've always found the academic side of it all very, very interesting. So I found that when I was doing my law degree, I tended to gravitate more towards essay writing rather than problem solving questions. So both are very interesting to me, but I'm very, very happy to do like very deep analysis of the law. Um, and so that that's kind of what drew me in the first place, even when I was actually a bit younger as well, when I was about 12 to 13, I've always been an argumentative child. It's a little bit of a cliche. Um, but so my parents sort of realized that within me and the first thought they had was this girl should be a lawyer barrister um, and so that was kind of um, something that was at the back of my mind for, for quite a long time until I went to law school and like I said really found that um, the argumentative side um, of things was really appealing to me uh, and then I did my training contract and found that that was a little bit more hands-on it was a little bit more um uh sort of about documents and sort of things which wasn't exactly the the thing that I enjoyed most about law school it wasn't necessarily the organizational aspect it was more the analytical aspect which I was missing a little bit in my training contract which was what what then um, allowed me to reconsider the bar apply for pupillage and um by a stroke of luck actually get it as well the main difference is is that um, like a more argumentative for a barrister and 
more practical for solicitors, is that right? I do have a, a slight caveat to that, which is that if you go down the route of becoming a litigation solicitor, you will have plenty of opportunities or other sort of um, more advisory roles. You will still have the opportunity to do um, very analytical work. But the other caveat that I would say to that is that as a junior lawyer, so as a trainee, but also as a junior associate, associate you would not get to do very very difficult work per se because that's mostly reserved for partners especially if you want to do oral advocacy which sometimes partners would do or um, the firm would outsource to a barrister to do so I wanted to really get on my feet in terms of oral advocacy but also in terms of writing really complex written submissions from a younger age which is what drew me to the bar as well. Wow, that's super helpful and really insightful. So thank you. Um, do you have any advice for someone, um, especially if they are, you know, a law student or non-law student and they're unsure about what, which um, route to pursue? Uh, what would your advice be to someone who's um, unsure about whether to go down the barrister or sister route? So I would definitely examine the sort of thing that you find the most enjoyable within your current law degree. So for example, I didn't find... Um, I really found essays to be really, really interesting. And I really enjoyed sitting down and constructing arguments, which then led me to do a lot of mooting as well, um, international mooting. Um, and that really allowed me to apply the analytical knowledge or analytical um, tendency towards a piece of work that looked a little bit more like a skeleton that I would actually construct in real life as a barrister. And that really sat well with me. So it's all about sort of trialing out different, different things at, uh, within your law school curriculum as well, but also try mooting as well. Like sometimes you might try mooting and you might decide that you don't like it when actually the issue with that is that you've done a national moot, let's say, which is set within the UK, when you could have been do doing like international arbitration mooting, which is what I did. I didn't actually really enjoy national mooting that much, but I enjoyed international level mooting. So mix and match different things um, within your academic sphere. But outside of your academic sphere, you can definitely um, speak to barristers to gain some uh, informal work experience. Not everything needs to be a mini pupillage. Mini pupillages tend to be um, more competitive and they tend to follow um, like an application process. But there will also be plenty of barristers that you can cold reach out to on LinkedIn and then they'll be happy to maybe host you for a couple of days just so you can see what it's like. And there's no pressure, right? Like it's always quite fluid I know plenty of solicitors who have gone down the solicitors route and then you know switched over to the bar and vice versa as well um and as as we speak um the the industry is getting more and more fluid the um the the transition between the two sides of the of the industry is definitely getting more and more frequent so um and from from what I can see as well whatever you do on one side of the industry is always going to inform and enhance what you could do in the other side of the industry. They, they talk to each other very frequently. So um, whatever you choose, know that you can't make the wrong decision because whatever you choose will always, always um, lend, lend to developing you professionally um, in the long run. So your experience of, of uh, being a solicitor uh, could actually provide another perspective when you're doing the bar, is that right? Very much so, yeah. The next question is, what did you find challenging about the privilege application process? Because a lot of our listeners are uh, aspiring barristers. Do you have any advice for doing privilege applications? I do have three specific pieces of advice. Um, and number one is to be prepared to get rejected. I know that's an unpopular opinion, but I, I don't want to pretend to be one of those people who just applied for people and just got it on the first go. Um, I did get it on the first round of applications, but I did apply to 20 different sets and I got rejected by every single one of those sets apart from one. And I'm already extraordinary extraordinarily lucky uh, to be able to say that because I know that there are some very qualified people much more qualified than I am who have had to go round after round after round uh, without much success and I feel like it was a stroke of luck for me to be even able to do it within, within one cycle and even within one cycle I had to apply to 20 of them um, 
And it's exactly the same with the way that I got my training contract as well. Um, people always post on LinkedIn how delighted they are that they've been selected for this interview or this TC, but no one ever talks about when they get rejected. Um, and this is something that I talk to my Strive students all the time about, that just because you see me right now having done a training contract, having gotten a pupilage, does not mean that I have not cried my eyes out, uh, cried myself to sleep every time that I've gotten rejections. It's just that you build your resilience against it and then you, you have the resolve in you to say, okay, no matter who, who says what to me, I want to be a barrister and I know I can do it. It's that resolve within you that will get you through and you need a support network of people who are also going through applications or people who've recently been through applications um, to kind of guide you through that process and to pick you back up. Um, when when you're feeling down, when, when rejections in inevitably do happen. The second piece of advice I would have um, is to really let your, your uh, unique characteristics shine. I know that a lot of people who are applying to the bar are under the impression that if, unless you go to Oxbridge or unless you have 60 different PhDs, or you have like 200 million different like awards and scholarships, you won't make it to the bar. I am like exhibit A <laughs> without making a legal pun there. And um, that I am, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not like that at all. I didn't go to Oxbridge. Um, I didn't um, have, you know, I wasn't the president of a law society, whatever. I don't have the traditional set of things. But what did make me stand out is, for example, co-founding um, Strive, which is a charity, which is quite different to what everybody else has done. I was able to showcase my commercial awareness, which I was able to get from my training contract, which, which is definitely quite an unusual route into the bar. And rather than try to hide those differences, I really brought those differences to the forefront and try to link it to how that could help me in, in a career at the bar. Um, now, that is not going to work with every single set. Some sets will find that very odd, especially the more traditional sets who are used to seeing applicants from a particular profile. Um, but trust me, if you play the numbers game and you apply to enough sets and you do enough research about each set, there will be a set out there that is actually going to appreciate rather than diminish your differences. Um, so definitely be confident in those differences and shine in them as well. Um, number three, tip number three would be just to um, be very structured in your applications. So when you're writing your applications, um, you need to treat it as if you were presenting um, a, a document to court. You know, you don't have um, you don't have space to waffle. You don't have space to um, kind of tell your whole life story. You've got to be very succinct and you've got to be very structured. This is something that I teach my my Strive students quite a lot. Um, and there's plenty of materials out there to help you help you structure your answers as well. But the the point is, um, you've got to know what you're going to write before you actually put pen to paper um, and definitely treat it as if um, this was this was a submission to court as well so like having your signposts and then having your conclusions very very clearly stated right so that's like a very long journey for the pupillage application and what what if you are selected for the interview for pupillage is there any other questions that you will have to prepare for the interview yeah so from my experience um there are loads of sets that tend to have two rounds of interviews. So for training contracts um, in the solicitor path, uh, they tend to only have like an assessment center and then that's it. So there's not a second interview. Whereas at the bar, there tends to be two rounds. Um, now, uh, every single set differs very significantly um, in terms of how they assess, but mostly I've seen that um, a lot of sets tend to give you a problem question um, which is going to be pretty legal. So it's not going to be so much commercial awareness. It's going to be, they give you a piece of legislation to read and then you need to apply it to a case. It's going to be pretty time pressed. So I would say if you do go to law school, um, definitely brush up on contract law. Um, a lot of the stuff that they're going to ask is mostly going to be around contract law. So the basics of contract law, um, you would need to look up on, um, for example, how to interpret a contract. Um, which is kind of the the on how do you uh, look at a certain wording in a contract and then 
approach it or interpret it in a reasonable way it's it's nothing kind of crazy it's just kind of brushing up on the basics of of that area of law um and then aside from that obviously have some knowledge of whatever branch of law that set is particularly good at so for example uh i'm got i'm the first to own up to my mistakes and my and my rejections but i was interviewed at a set which was primarily property law I'm not a property person by any stretch of the imagination. I walked in completely lost. I didn't bother reading it up. And unsurprisingly, I was not called back for a second interview. Uh, so don't be like me. <laughs> Thank you very much for that advice and that funny anecdote. I was going to follow up and ask, actually, you mentioned you applied for 90, uh, for 20 different sets um, in your um, application round. How did you, and yeah, that you're actually going to go to a commercial set. How did you kind of figure out um obviously that you weren't interested in property law but more commercial general chancery law uh, it's not that I'm not interested in property law because my future set is going to be doing a bit of property law as well but it's more just that um the set that I was talking about that I was rejected from they were only property specialists I guess I was I was writing applications to all of these sets because I was trying to play the numbers numbers game a little bit too much and I was like well you know the more sets that I apply to the better right but the, the point with that is that even if I do make it to interview round, I pretty quickly showed myself up to be someone who just submitted an application without real interest in property law specifically. Um, but how did I figure it out? I would say that the set that I'm currently or about to go to, they are very, very broad um, in the areas that they uh, specialize in or have uh, barristers actually practice in, which is something that really drew me to the set because I honestly don't know what I want to do. I broadly know that I'm really into the analytical aspects of the bar. Uh, and I know broadly that I've got quite a lot of commercial um, experience and I could probably put that to good use. Uh, but in selecting a set, if you're very, very interested in a very specific branch of law, good for you, but a lot of people aren't and it's okay to not be as well. You just need to look for a set that, that has quite a broad range um, as is what, what I basically ended up doing. So have you decided which area of law that you want to specialize in the career of bar? No idea. <laughs> and I think it's very much okay. This, this is such a misconception as well. I feel like a lot of people applying to both training contracts and um, pupillages feel like they need to have it all figured out by the age of 19, which is not going to happen. Um, even if you think you figured it out, um, you will end up working and then you will change your mind. Um, so there's no need being too close-minded about it. Um, and I'm just really excited to throw myself completely into my pupillage because I'll have a couple of seats as well, which is a little bit like the training contract structure. I'll have uh, three months with different supervisors in different areas um, or different expertise or specialisms. Um, and then it's just up to me to also build my own practice afterwards as well. The beauty of being at the bar as opposed to being a solicitor is that you're not just... Um, pigeonholed into a particular specialism because it's up to you to build um so for example I'm very free to have a property practice alongside let's say like a like a fraud um like a company uh company crime for example alongside you know uh human rights even like it's very varied um and it's up to me what cases I choose to take or, or not not so much at the junior end but um, as I develop my, my practice more, I'll be able to kind of really see um, what I'm interested in. But right now, I think it's quite, quite counterproductive for me to predict what I will be interested in like five, 10 years down the line. Thank you for sharing that. And yeah, it's always good to keep an open mind uh, for whatever area of law or whatever career path you're following. Um, we're coming to the end of uh, this interview, so I just wanted to kind of ask you about your um, time management and juggling skills, as you are the one of the co-founders of Strive, and you were also applying for pupillages while on your training contract. How did you manage to juggle this? So I think the one thing that I would say, and I know that I've droned on for a while now, so I'm not going to bore you too much with a long answer, is to really simplify what matters to you. So there was definitely a time when I was at uni where I was taking on everything from everyone uh, because I didn't know how to say no. And I also didn't know what was important to me and what wasn't. 
Um, now, the reason why I was successful with pupillage applications, as well as doing my full-time job as a trainee solicitor, as well as working on Strive, was because I narrowed down that these three things were the most important things to me at that time. And I wasn't doing much else. Um, obviously, I still had a social life, but I wasn't like spending my time doing a million other projects that didn't actually matter to me. And then it's also about like delegating work where it's possible within Strive. Um, and then it's also making sure that within my training contract as well. So during the time I was applying for pupillages, in my training contract, it was already work from home because it was locked down. Um, and I was able to sort of um, rearrange my schedule accordingly. So sometimes even within work hours, um, if I didn't need to be doing that much work, I would just use that time wisely to write my pupillage applications. And then, you know, I, maybe sometime in the evening, I need to come back to my training contract. It was quite flexible. Um, so in a weird way, COVID and work from home actually um, gave me a lot of time and flexibility to be able to pursue, pursue all three of these things. Amazing. Thank you. Um, that's really great to know. Um, and then penultimate question, I promise. How is your master's going? Are you enjoying it? And um, do you think it's going to be helpful for your time on your pupillage? So I'm really enjoying it. It's quite a different degree to what I've been used to. Obviously, I've mostly been doing commercial law so far, both in my UCL degree and also in my training contract. Um, and so it's quite an interesting view because it's kind of completely the other side of the law. Um, but it's really interesting as well because part of the course that I'm doing right now is the intersection between businesses and uh, human rights, which is something I'm deeply interested in because to me, I feel like... Um, in order to make a big impact within the human rights sphere, we might have to go through businesses who themselves have a lot of influence in, in that sphere as well. So I don't know whether it's necessarily going to help me in my pupillage, but I've, I feel like I've gotten to a, a stage in my career or a stage in my life now where I'm like, I will do things because it matters to me, not because I want to necessarily do it for the CV. Um, I understand that earlier on in my career or in my life, a lot of the things have to be geared towards the CV, but I also remind people who are listening to this podcast that that's not the only, the only goal in life is not to polish your CV. So definitely do something that you actually enjoy as well, even if it doesn't necessarily concretely um, or immediately contribute to something um, that, that you can see or you can touch because um, anything that you do uh, in some way will contribute um, sometime in the future. That, that's my personal philosophy. Thank you. So it comes to the final question. What is your top tip for the aspiring barrister? Do as many experiences in any way, shape or form as possible. So that doesn't need to just be work experience. Um, I understand with COVID and with a, a bunch of other restrictions, it's not always possible. Um, but still do try and reach out to people um, on LinkedIn, for example, um, and, and get work experience that way. Uh, but aside from work experience, definitely um, I published an article. So I published my dissertation in um, a law journal. Um, and that is definitely something that helped me strengthen, strengthen my applications when it came to pupillages because I could show that I had that academic skill, academic writing skill within me. Um, and then also lots of mooting as well. And even Strive, to be honest, like Strive doesn't sound that relevant to a career, career at the bar. But actually, it really is because there's a lot of entrepreneurship, um, self-employment, uh, which is very relevant to the bar, and also being able to be organized with your time, um, being able to talk to people from very different backgrounds, very different, diverse um, uh, uh, interests and different points of view. All of that somehow relates back to the bar. So be very creative with what the what experiences you could link to the bar. Think outside of the box because it doesn't always just need to be, I got three scholarships at Oxford. It's the case with some people, but if you're not that person, don't try to be that person. There's always some way that you can link what you do have to the bar and in so doing, make your application a, a unique one. I think that I've been, I've bored you guys enough, um, I think, with my long answers. And I, I think I'll just leave with one, one small thing, which is that if you truly believe that this is the right thing for you, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Um, I have worked with somebody, this is not so much with the bar, but this is an associate who is currently at a top um, law firm right now. He tried for five years to get a vacation scheme. He never gave up and now he's an associate. So um, as long as you stick to it, you just need one person to say yes to you. 
And even if it doesn't happen in the first year, as long as you stick to it, yeah, as long as you're, you're sure that that is the right thing for you. Yeah, thank you so much for joining. Um, really insightful and really interesting. And yeah, I w- was always really curious to hear about your, um, why you switch, why you made the switch. So it's really great to like learn more about um, your reasons. Wow, I really enjoyed that chat with Tilly Chow. What about you, Queenie? Yes, I really enjoyed our chat with Tilly and learning about her unusual route to the bar. Our next guest was Christian Weaver, a barrister at Garden Court North Chambers, who joined us to talk about his new book, The Law in 60 Seconds, A Pocket Guide to Your Rights, Tips for Your Privilege Applications, and also the importance of getting different work experience. Congratulations on the publication of your book, The Law in 60 Seconds. We wanted to know what spurred you to write it? There are a lot of different things, some actually quite um, deep, which I'll share, and then some that were much more um, just everyday. So the, 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 the deep reason, if you like, is that I remember my first childhood memory when I was about six years old, and it was um, my granddad being, my, my grandparents being racially abused. So dog feces would be smeared over their car in, in their house in Nottingham. Um, and we called the police and like, for whatever reason, nothing was done about it. But I remember from that moment onwards, realizing that it was my granddad actually that had to take matters into his own hands. And actually we couldn't rely on the police or the very institutions that were meant to protect us. So I think from quite a young age, I had quite a, a big awareness of quite a deep social issue actually. And then that ties into things such as how um, the police treat different communities. Um, and then when, um, so that was, that was the main, that was kind of the, the deep reason. And I wanted to write a book that empowered people. So if for whatever reason they couldn't trust the authorities or um, they, don't, they don't want to go that way, they actually knew how they could handle legal issues arising themselves. But then on a much more everyday level, I remember when I was a student, and especially in first year and second year, and literally you, you try and rent with a landlord and he rips you off and you go to the shop and you get ripped off at the shop. <laughs> I realized it just led to a chaotic lifestyle. And I thought actually, if there can be a book that just distills all of the relevant law you need to know in something you can literally carry around, that, that's a value to society. I'm surprised it's not being done already. So that was uh, how the book came about. The 60 seconds idea is really interesting. So you, make, you try to make the law easier for people to understand, is that right? Precisely, yeah. Yeah, and it actually started off as a series on YouTube called The Law in 60 Seconds. So I do get the Amazon review that's like, you can't read a whole book in 60 seconds, but the, the genesis of it came from the YouTube videos that were 60 seconds. Um, and it's all, I guess when you kind of distill it all down again, it's all about just making the law accessible and something that is the public's to learn and understand how it applies to them, as opposed to something that you know is esoteric and really hard for them to access. No, it's for everyone. And that's what the book. And I read a few pages of your book and I found it so interesting. And are you planning to publish a second series of the book? Uh, I have to chat to the editor, but um, I, I would love to. I would love to. And I think, I mean, I deliberately chose laws that aren't likely to change anytime too soon. Um, but I, I genuinely think it's something that's really important in society. And in the absence of the education system teaching people about their rights, it's unfortunate that it falls to lawyers to do so. But as long as that gap exists, I would like to think that the law in 60 seconds and the book can help fill it. Right, keeping the theme of 60 seconds, so back to our topic today, and would you explain briefly in 60 seconds about how to become a, a barrister? Sure, okay. So, and barristers aren't known for being very brief. I'm gonna try and keep this within 60 seconds, as you said, but um, the, there's, I guess you could say the typical route is that a person would do um, the law degree, which is around, which is, which is three years. Um, some of course offer sandwich degrees and whatnot, but a three-year law degree. And then after that, um, assuming you've done a law degree, you can then go on to do what in my day was called the BPTC. I believe it's now the BPC, um, and that's one year. Um, or you can do it part-time, which would be two years. And then upon completion of that, provided you pass the, the necessary exams and get the, the necessary, yeah, the necessary grade to pass, you're then um, what you call call to the bar. So before you actually start on the BPC, you have to join one of the inns of court. And there are four inns. Um, so I'm a member of Lincoln's Inn, but there's also Inner Temple, Middle Temple, Gray's Inn. Um, and I remember when I was researching them, someone described them as houses in Harry Potter, but the same kind of concept. So Gryffindor and Slytherin and all of this. I don't know, but I, I do see the logic. Um, but for anyone in the application stage, they are all they all pretty much carry out the same function. 
Um, and then, of course, upon you being called to the bar, um, or in fact, you can sometimes do it before, but then um, upon you completing the BPC, you try and obtain pupillage. And then it's upon you completing your pupillage, you're a fully fledged barrister. Um, and just to quickly give the alternative route, um, you could, of course, do a degree that isn't law, say a history degree, and then you can do a course called the GDL, um, which is the law conversion course. And then from that, you could do either the BPC or the LPC if you wanted to be a solicitor. Um, so yeah, hopefully not too far off 60 seconds. So after graduating from bar course, I'm wondering how the journey goes forward. Uh, do they apply for the INS court? And could you further explain on this? Sure. In fact, so what was that? So when you finished the BPC and then what was the question? So I think the question is, um, you know, when you're doing the, the bar course and so on, how do you figure out what ins of court like to apply to? Does it really make a difference, as you said uh, in your previous answer, or should you just kind of apply for all four and hope for the best? Sure, no. So the, so it's just before the bar course when you need to join an in of court. And the, yeah, what seems to happen is that the, all of the ins offer scholarships and uh, all of the ins will have slightly different criteria and amounts as to how much they will fund in a scholarship. So often if there's an in, let's say, this is just hypothetical, in fact, let's say in, in X um, offers a scholarship of X amount of money and the criteria is such that, or the process is such that you won't need to do an interview, um, but you just rely on a written application. Let's say, you know, you have really good writing skills. You might tactically make the decision to apply for that in of court in the knowledge that, you know, you're probably most likely to get a scholarship there to cover your bar course fees because they don't require a face-to-face -face interview. Um, that's a very general example, but that's how a lot of people make decisions. But then for some people, um, I mean, this didn't apply in my setting, but let's say you have family members that were barristers before you were, and your dad is a member of Inner Temple, maybe you carry it on through family tradition. And then for others, and perhaps especially for those that maybe, again, have law in the family, or maybe just live in London, you might actually have an affinity to a certain end. Maybe you attended a wedding ceremony there once because there are often venues used for that sort of thing. And that might be a reason. But for me, it was just completely random. <laughs> um, but yeah. Hey, thanks for the explanation. Yeah, I did see that. Uh, I think it was David Beckham's father got married in Middle Temple, which was very cool, but bizarre. But now that makes sense. Um, <laughs> now that I know that they're wedding venues, I was just like, oh, maybe he's a high flying judge I didn't know about. Um, <laughs> but that makes a lot more sense. So thank you. Um, so moving on from, you know, the bar course and applying to join an Inns of Court, uh, could you kind of explain what a pupillage is and what you actually do as a pupil barrister? Every pupillage is a bit different. Um, so where the commonality does exist is the fact that um, typically speaking, a pupillage will be 12 months. Um, and your first six months are called your non-practicing six months. So typically you'll be shadowing your um, su pupil supervisor around. So in my case, that was um, a lady called Claire Ashcroft. She was a quite a senior criminal barrister. So I'll be shadowing her around. Then in your second six months, um, you are able to take on cases your, yourself. Um, so they'll often be more, the more simple cases, um, but you can kind of start trying your hand at doing advocacy in, in, in real life with real clients. So that's how it generally works. In some situations, pupillages will be extended slightly. In fact, mine was during COVID. So my co-pupil and I did have ours extended slightly, um, but that's generally how it works. And actually, I should just say as well, so I don't know if this is the next question, but in terms of how pupillage operates and what pupillage is like, it's, shall I answer that now or shall I hold on? Yeah, cool. Okay, so pupillage in itself is probably one of the most nerve-wracking periods actually of your career in, in a really strange way because you are constantly being judged. And I really thank my chamber actually because I think they took all of the steps they could to make the pupillage experience as enjoyable as possible for want of a better word. Um, and I had a very good co-pupil as well, who I've got a good relationship with, which helped. But fundamentally, at the end of your pupillage, you're hoping to obtain something called tenancy. And tenancy is effectively where that chambers is saying, hey, we think you're good enough for us. We're inviting you in to be a barrister with us. And um, what that means is literally for 12 months, you are second guessing every move, every conversation you have with a barrister in chambers. And it requires you to actually really mature into an adult as well, because there might be times when the barrister might ask you to do some work for them. And you know that, and you know you're meant to say yes, but you know that in saying yes, it's going to encroach on the deadline you have for another barrister. So actually you need to learn how to manage those relationships and um, yeah, na navigate those sorts of real life issues. 
So it's a, it's a very steep learning curve, but um, I think it, it, you learn so much in it that means that when you are a fully-fledged barrister, or actually if you left the bar altogether and wanted to work in a different industry, you've got some brilliant skills that will, will all go well. So it's, once you're through it, it's a, it's, a, it's a great positive. I'm very curious. And how do you feel about getting your first client or first case doing your pupillage at that time? Yeah, sure. It's, it's quite something, actually. It's a, and it's a real honour as well. So I remember the first time I saw my name written and it said um, council, we referred to myself as council. I'm thinking, wow, that's, there's a, quite a responsibility in this. And then I think when you're wearing the wig and gown in court, I don't do much crown court work anymore. I've changed my practice, but in pupillage when I was doing bits and you're wearing the wig and gown and you're realising almost the, the, the respect that members of the public put into that, it is quite huge, especially when you know, you've been panicking all night, 1am preparing the case frantically. And then all of a sudden you're seen as a person of real responsibility and authority. I think I remember my first client quite well, actually. And it was a gentleman that had been accused of um, obstructing the police. So apparently like kind of attacking, not quite attacking, but sort of attacking the police. And even little biases we all as humans have. So upon reading the papers, and naturally, you know, as you would, you think, oh, you know, why are the police going to bring this all the way to court if there's no merit in it? And there was no merit in it. And actually he hadn't done that. He was found not guilty. And I think that was a really good experience to have at first because it taught me as a lawyer and I already knew it intellectually, but it taught me as a lawyer, no, you assess everything and don't believe anything that's written, you know, is there evidence? And that's, that's how the law operates. So it was a really good case to start with. Um, yeah, I still remember him now. I hope I see him one day, actually. But yeah, really good case. So yeah, that was that. Oh, yeah. We could like to ask if you have any tips for getting most out of your pupillage, because you said you shadowed in your first six months. The second six months, you are really doing your own case. Do you have any tips for aspiring barristers? How do you get the most out of your pupillage? Sure. I think that's a really good question, actually. So I think for the first six months, it's literally about being a sponge. So I remember a barrister who was kind of one year my senior. So she was in pupillage when, sorry, when I was in pupillage, she just finished it. Um, she said, when you're in court, write everything down, even if you don't understand it. And at the start, you won't understand it. So just write everything down. That was her tip. And that was wildly helpful because it meant that, let's say I was in, a, in, a, in an immigration hearing that was two hours long. I'd write a full transcript of what happened. Not much of it might make sense, but then when I'm on my feet in my second six as a barrister, and something's come up, I can think, wait, I'm sure I covered that. That, that word rings a bell. And then all of a sudden, you can see what that other lawyer... Um... Oh, can you guys still hear me, by the way? Okay, my... Okay, that's fine. If you can't, just let me know. Um, but um, yeah, it meant that when I started um, doing those sorts of cases, I could review the transcripts I'd already made, which made things massively easier. So I'd say in, in the first six months, certainly a case of writing down everything, ask questions as well. Um, everyone says there's no such thing as a stupid question. And that, that really is true. I think because it is your pupillage, there's the extent to which you, know, if you can find the answer without asking a question, do that. But you will thank your, your second six self will thank your first six self if your first six self was asking questions. So with my tip in relation to first six, in relation to second six, I think um, time organization is actually essential. So cases start being put in your diary. It's really important that you manage your time. So you know how long it takes you realistically to walk to a train station when you've got a wheelie case behind you, when you need to maybe take extra time to check that you have literally packed everything. Um, and I'd also just say self care as well so in your second six especially it can be incredibly easy to let slip all of your self-care things you might be going to the gym eating healthily in your second six you will have every excuse not to do those things you will not have time to go to the gym on paper you will not have time to cook proper meals on paper but it honestly that i can only advise it's the best thing to try and force yourself to do um, and not only does it actually make you have a, a better second six one where you actually enjoy the experience but then when you become a fully-fledged barrister, they're habits you take forward. But fundamentally, you know, just because second six ends, it's not like you become a different person. The habits you cultivate, create in second six are the ones that will carry on throughout your career. So if you want a long career at the bar, there's certainly habits to get into the habit of from then. So you mentioned that you got tenancy last year. I wanted to ask, you seem to have had a focus on legal education and legal reform. Has that always been the case? Have you always known you wanted to kind of specialise in that area as a barrister? Well, it's so interesting because 
in so in terms of wide interest area, yes, legal education for a long time has been important to me. So the Law in 60 Seconds, which was the video project before the book, that started before I was a fully-fledged barrister or even a pupil barrister. And that was in light of the fact that there was information I had, having completed law school, that the public desperately needed to know. And while I wasn't in a position to represent members of the public myself because I wasn't qualified, I was in a position at least to impart the knowledge I was sure of. So that's how that came about. Um, I think in terms of how I weave that into my practice, every client I have, I always try and... I remember in the book, actually, in the introduction page, I mentioned something about it's the sort of book I would want to give to a client every time I say, say those fleeting words of best of luck moving forward. And um, I do try and... Even if I don't give them a physical copy of the book, I do try and give them legal education when they leave in court because... For me, it's a job, but for them, when they're in court, it's the most traumatic day of their life, potentially. Um, so I do try and weave that in. But I think in terms of practice areas, human rights has always been the thing. So, um, and human rights can take many different forms. So for me, at some point, it was immigration law. Now it's largely parole board hearings and um, kind of inquests and inquiries um, that kind of touch on human rights issues. Um, but yeah, that's, that's been an extreme constant throughout. And your decision for choosing specializing in human rights, is it because you have volunteered before you were on the bar and did the volunteering experience have any influence on your choice on being specialized in human rights? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it did. And, but I would also go as far to say that I think the voluntary experience I chose was often because I had that interest already. And I think it was a realization that, you know, if you're going to go into law, or this is how I saw it, but, it's no criticism to anyone that doesn't do this. Everyone has their own reasons. But I remember for me thinking, if I'm going to go into law and use my time in that, I want to be doing it in an area that's helping the little man as opposed to the powerful entity that's always going to have good lawyers able to represent them anyway. Um, so I think from that, part of it was the case that, you know, I might have known that in my mind, but in order to show a human rights barrister's chambers, such as Garden Court North, that I'm capable of doing that, I knew it was important I actually get proper experience. And that's where... For example, volunteering at Liberty Human Rights Charity or um, Inquest, which deal with debts in state custody, where I, where I worked for about a year and a half, actually, in London. That was really important for me to be able to demonstrate that this wasn't just a thought I had in my head, but something I had practical experience of and a genuine passion of. So I think that's how my work experience tied in. And I think actually just to add to that, um, I had an interest in kind of politics. But politics in the sense of, you know, people should have the power to change the societies they live in. Um, so it was in 2017, I was the UK's youth delegate to the Congress of the Council of Europe, which was a role that, I mean, the Council of Europe really is the human rights body in Europe. So that, um, yeah, that certainly played a big role as well. And I learned so much through that experience that, again, and I try to translate into my practice as a barrister. Christian, you mentioned about your um, experiences and do you recommend aspiring barristers to also do the same thing, like to work as a volunteer or to do pro bono or do you have other tips? Sure. I think one good thing about being a barrister is that I feel, or one good thing about being in this profession is that I feel like every skill is somewhat transferable. So when I was, there was a time when I was a columnist for the Nottingham Post and the skills that I learned in learning how to write a column piece um, and kind of persuasively put my point across were skills that worked well when I was trying to write a skeletal argument before a judge. So I think any, any fundamentally, any piece of work you do where you're deeply investing yourself will provide you with transferable skills that then can be used in your barrister practice. So I would say with that alone, it's certainly worth, um, yeah, getting whatever you can get your hands on. But I think in addition, if there's a practice area that you've identified that you're particularly passionate about, then if you can get experience in that area, then that's great. But I guess I would say um, no one can do you better than you can do you. So you might have read the textbooks that say, oh, get experience here and here and here, and then you're sure to get a pupillage. But if everybody's doing that, then it, it, it's not, it mathematically won't work or won't necessarily work. So it's really important to actually look into the things that make you unique. What are your genuine passions? What are the things you would have wanted to spend your time on if you don't get pupillage? Because all of those viewing this will get pupillage, but statistically you won't. So my point is, you know, what would you want to, want to have spent your time doing anyway? Great, thank you so much. And I guess to wrap up this interview, our final question is, what is your top tip for aspiring barristers? Top tip for aspiring barristers would be, 
practice your advocacy. It sounds a bit generic, I suppose, or cliche, but I think fundamentally when people think of barristers, they think of advocacy. But the, the reason I think it's particularly important is, in fact, I've got two, another just popped to my mind. Um, but practicing your advocacy is important because real realistically, when you have your pupillage interview, the final round interview is probably going to be an advocacy exercise. Um, and you will frantically be practicing the night before. And I promise you, you'll feel much more at ease if just throughout your life, even if it's literally a minute a day, just practicing how you speak, your, your diction, um, that will be time saved um, where you're not panicking the night before your final round pupillage interview, which will eventually come, I hope. Um, and the other tip, and it sounds like it's self-serving, but it genuinely isn't, but when you go to pupillage interviews, you will often be asked question about an area of law that you're not familiar with and genuinely reading a pocket-sized book like the law in 60 seconds where you can actually get a general sense of just general law will all go well when you're in an interview and will give you confidence so that would be the second tip but yeah thank you well thank you very much for that amazing interview and I love the rep you just gave yourself at the end that's always great we'll put the link in the show notes as well to your book and obviously all your socials but yeah thank you very much uh, for coming in on the podcast Christian the Let's Chat Law team wants to say a big thank you to Tilly and Christian for coming on the podcast to share their stories and advice if you want to find more, out more about Tilly and Christian including their work at Strive and the Law in 60 Seconds respectively we will put their social media links um, and so on in the episode show notes Some of our listeners submitted questions for our podcast guests and to help us discuss them Gabby is back on the podcast Welcome back Abby. Thank you guys for having me. So the question that was submitted was submitted from an aspiring barrister who is an LLB graduate and currently a criminal paralegal and they asked what makes an application stand out when applying for pupillage? So I think this is a really good question especially for our topic this month. As I am an aspiring barrister, I have not yet obtained pupillage. However, I really want to emphasise the importance of resilience um, as standing out on a pupillage application and obtaining pupillage is extremely competitive. Um, so please, guys, don't guess get disheartened or anything like that if you don't get pupillage first time round or second time round and so on. In my experience through talking to barristers and discussing pupillage applications, I really believe that the most important things to stand out in pupillage applications are, um, firstly, do your research. I cannot stress the importance of doing your research and understanding what chambers want. But also, um, if you want to stand out, you need to show that you know your stuff. You need to show that you know what you want to do in the future and why you want to be at that specific chambers. And secondly, what you need to do is you need to provide evidence. So if you are going to make a point, so for example, you want to suggest that you have good communication skills, then you always need to back it up. So provide examples of how you've got good communication skills. Is this through um, mooting or attending webinars and talking and presenting? So always back up with evidence and show that you actually have the skills rather than just saying you have the skills. And then finally, what I think is really important is showing your individuality. So really, you are applying for this, Chambers, to make sure that it's the right fit for you as well. So it's a two-way street, guys. The application process is not only that you fit in with the Chambers, but also that the Chambers fits your needs and fits what you want to do in the future. So even though you may not think something is special, because it actually might be the one thing that makes you stand out, this can be something as little as extracurricular activities or hobbies, but just be yourself and be honest, because at the end of the day, barristers and professionals are trained to detect whether you're lying or over-egging something. Just be yourself and be honest. And remember, guys, it is a two-way street, so good luck with your applications. But what we all want to do is we all want to hear what our guests, Tilly and Christian, have to say. 
Thank you very much for your question. So uh, from my personal experience, I would say there are two things that made me stand out when applying for pupillage. Um, number one is really going into detail um, about your experiences. So rather than staying at the very surface level of, oh, you know, I was a paralegal and, you know, it was, I was able to deal with lots of high value claims. No, I mean, obviously don't breach your NDA, but within those confines, do put in as many numbers as possible, be as specific as possible. The test that I often use with my Strive candidates is, can somebody who has not done your experience make this up? And if your um, answer is a little bit too vague, such that someone who hasn't done your experience, like me, for example, I've never been a criminal paralegal, let's say, um, you know, if I can make it up, then you need to go a little bit deeper um, uh, in your answer. The second point I would say is don't be afraid to showcase uh, skills that don't appear to immediately be very relevant to a barrister. Um, so I think with the bar, a lot of people have this misconception, again, depending on which chambers, actually, some chambers do are quite traditional, but a lot of them also are not. Um, it's not all just about being able to reason legally, although that, that is, of course, a huge part of it, but also having an entrepreneurial streak and also having um, an understanding of the, the business development side of the of the industry, because there are many barristers who are very good at the law, but not so good at necessarily being a businessman or businesswoman, which is also a huge part of, of your practice. So uh, be don't be afraid to link any entrepreneurial or law firm experiences um, to your application as well. In my view, being yourself is automatically the way to make applications stand out. And that's because you, you know, you as an individual, your experiences are unique. Um, and it's bringing that out, it's drawing from that that actually enables you to write, in my view, an application that can stand out because it's unique. It's born out of your uniqueness. Um, and I think it's always important to stress that because I think we spend so much time as aspiring barristers trying to find perhaps those tick box answers. Um, but through deep looking into your own life, you'll often be able to find that you have genuine experiences that you can um, use to demonstrate, for example, brilliant written advocacy skills or persuasion skills. Um, and taking those as examples, let's say you are asked to demonstrate um, you know, your, your written advocacy skills. Of course, you'll have academic things you're likely to be able to show, but perhaps you had to help a family member write a strongly worded letter to the council so that they received something that they were entitled to. That's a brilliant example of you having to employ the skills of, of written advocacy. Um, if you worked in a sales job, um, and perhaps if there were certain targets you had to meet and whatnot, that can be brilliant in showing your persuasion skills. And of course, the skill is to quite clearly in your application link all of that um, into to why you would make a good barrister. But in my view, that is the way to make your application stand out. Um, and I, th I would think in addition, everyone tries to kind of write to the very top of the word count. I think the best applications, judging by the ones I've seen anyway, are certainly those that are actually a bit under the word count. I think if you can, aim to be under the word count. Um, and as a bit of a, as, as an example, if you see like a bag of coins, if you have a lot of pound coins, um, but loads of pennies there as well, the value actually looks less than if you had way less pennies in there, but just the pound coins, um, because you see the value. Um, and I think your application should be the same. Um, allow your strong points to, to show by not clouding them with, with things that aren't so relevant. Those were really interesting points from Tilly and Christian. Thanks again to both of them for joining this episode. We all really appreciate it at the Let's Chat Law team. If you have any questions for our next episode's guests about negotiation skills or competitions, as well as assessment centres, you can send it to letschatlaw at gmail.com and we will ask our guests your questions anonymously. Next is the commercial awareness update on the podcast, presented by Lana, one of the new members of the podcast team. Lana, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi guys, I am Lana. I'm a second year law student in Trinity College, Dublin in Ireland, and I'm very excited to be joining the Let's Chat Law team. Thank you and welcome to the team. So what's been your top news story this month? Right now, the legal sector has been officially hit with a hiring shortage. 
There are many reasons for this. Other than long-term effects of COVID-19, inflation rate is rising, there is higher demand for legal services, lower lawyer turnover, and fewer lawyers coming to the UK from abroad. All these have resulted in a lack of permanent employees, particularly at an associate level in London-based law firms. Even though there were record hiring levels last year, some companies are still having trouble filling positions because everyone's vying for the same skills. To keep everyone happy, bigger pay and bonuses have been implemented. According to research from Recruital BCL Legal and data firm VKSoft, vacancies for London-based associates increased by 131% year-on-year between January and November last year. Companies have tried to combat these shortages by increasing entry-level salaries, but despite these efforts, the shortage continues as U.S. firms make way into the British legal sector and offering newly qualified lawyers a whopping £100,000 before bonuses. Elena, how are the law firms responding to the hiring shortage? Some companies tried to attract new hires with generous remuneration packages. Existing employees' earnings have mostly remained relatively stable. Firms cannot keep the same wage rates if they want to stay in practice. So what do you think law firms could be doing better? I think change seems already underway in certain firms, as wage increases are happening at all levels, from entry-level workers and temporary employees through management and senior positions. Almost half of the employers polled in company surveys said they expect raised salaries to keep up with the benefits provided to the new recruits. So do you think this pay increase is sustainable? The only way for these pay increases to be sustainable for firms is for the inflation rate to be increased appropriately. I mean, for the newly qualified solicitor's perspective, it is sustainable. But for example, from the perspective of already existing employees, if they also do not receive an increase in pay, surely this would disrupt the hiring hierarchy. Well, thank you, Lana, for that interesting story. That really is some food for thought, and it will be interesting to follow and see what happens over the course of 2022. Moving on to the fun part of the show, our fun fact of the month. We have Betty, our new podcast editor with us. Betty, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, uh, uh, yes, I'm Betsy. Um, I'm an LLM LPC student at BPP University. Um, and I've now joined like the podcast team with Les Chatlow. And so, yeah, it's really good. Thank you, Betsy. Would you like to share your fun fact or interesting story of the month? I want to talk about Eve Cornwell's pivot out of legal practice and into full-time tech. I didn't just choose the story because it was breaking news on the lawyer.com, but also like how unique it was because she just recently qualified September last year. So she's making the pivot with only four months of post-qualifiers experience, which is interesting because like the expectation would be that, you know, she'd wait like maybe one or two years uh, or like three years before deciding to like, oh, make a change or like a decision or go into a new um, sector. Yeah, that's why I chose it. And in her LinkedIn post, she blessed us with it and just helped us so that we don't have to like be guessing and wondering oh, what happened. Um, she discussed like how the decision was very important, but it was she had to ask herself a, um, a tough question, being able to like step back and really question like what drives her happiness. And obviously she's a massive law influencer. So like that also comes with its own expectations um, because there are a lot of people who she's been able to like guide um, into the legal profession. And she just talked about how, you know, being able to like strip back those layers of like outside expectation and really like focusing on herself and like what she wants out of a career. And yeah, that's what happened. And now she's made a pivot into like legal technology. Yeah, it's such an interesting story after following Eve's route into law for years. What do you personally think about it? Has it opened your eyes to alternative routes outside of the traditional training contract route? I think it's just like this pivot, it's really going to influence like obviously current and next generation lawyers to really like really make an informed decision about what they actually want out of a career and just being able to know like it's never too early to make a new decision like even if you're you've not yet gotten your training contract or you've just gotten it or you've just qualified it's kind of like it's really more about you and your journey not anyone else's um, expectations on what you should do. Thank you Betty for the interesting story. And that's it for this month's episode. A big thank you to our amazing speakers, Tilly Chow and Christian Weaver for their inspiring and interesting stories and helpful tips on the pupillage application process. If you're planning to apply for pupillages, we really hope this episode will give you some practical tips to implement. 
And of course, a big thank you to the podcast team at Let's Chat Law. Stay tuned again for the next episode of Let's Chat Law, the podcast, where we'll be talking about negotiation, which is one of the core skills for commercial solicitors. We'll be focusing on why the skill is so important, as well as negotiation competitions and CV building for law students. If you have any negotiation-related question for our guests, please email us at lastchatlaw at gmail.com and we might select your question and put it to our guests anonymously. We appreciate all your feedback on Let's Chat Law, the podcast. Please let us know what you thought by leaving us a comment or sending us a message on Facebook, Instagram or LinkedIn. Don't forget to click subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to get notifications when the next episode is out. Finally, remember to subscribe to the Let's Chat Law monthly newsletter to be the first to know about our latest news. See you all in the next episode.